Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, each December, the Seattle Short Stories Live series presents A Rogue's Christmas. A rogue, you say? The writer Henry Fielding called him a rich man without charity. Merriam-Webster describes a dishonest, worthless, or mischievous person. This year, Seattle stage rogues Gene Sherrard, Paul Dorpat, Con Doan, and Kurt Beatty shared their talents. You'll hear stories by James Thurber, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ali Smith, Kurt Vonnegut, and Muriel Spark, curated by Mr. Sherrard. A Rogue's Christmas was presented on December 11th at Town Hall Seattle. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. And from everyone here at KUOW and Speakers Forum, best wishes for happy and healthy holidays. Here, Jean Sherrard introduces the first story. We're going to start with A Christmas Cracker by Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. And a few years before he changed the world of writing and literature with his masterpiece, The Great Gatsby, before Tender is the Night, before This Side of Paradise, and many, many short stories. He attended the prestigious Newman School in Hackensack, New Jersey. And this next story was written, believe it or not, by a 17-year-old F. Scott Fitzgerald. And it was published in his school newspaper. And I think that all the raw materials of, of what he later became are fully present here. In addition, the themes that he would kept returning to throughout his career, which was all too short, uh, this story is an early prototype of those basic stories, uh, and the basic plots. A man pushed to do something or become someone for the love of a woman. So here's Khan Doan again to read it for us. A luckless Santa Claus. Miss Harmon was responsible for the whole thing. It had, if it had not been for her foolish whim, Talbot would not have made a fool of himself. And, oh, but I am getting ahead of my story. It was Christmas Eve. Salvation Army Santa Clauses with highly colored noses proclaimed it as they beat upon rickety paper chimneys with tin spoons. Package-laden old bachelors forgot to worry about how many slippers and dressing gowns they would have to thank people for next day and join in the general air of excitement that pervaded busy Manhattan. In the parlor of a house situated on a dimly lighted residence street, somewhere east of Broadway, sat the lady who, as I said before, started the whole business. She was holding a conversation, half frivolous, half sentimental, with a faultlessly dressed young man who sat with her on the sofa. All of this was quite right and proper, however, for they were engaged to be married in June. Harry Talbot, said Dorothy Harmon, as she rose and stood laughing at the merry young gentleman beside her. If you aren't the most ridiculous boy I ever met, 
I'll eat that terrible box of candy you brought me last week. Dorothy, reproved the young man. You should receive gifts in the spirit in which they were given. That box of candy cost me much of my hard-earned money. Oh, your hard-earned money indeed, scoffed Dorothy. You know very well that you never earned a cent in your life. Golf and dancing, that is the sum total of your occupations. Why, you can't even spend money, much less earn it. My dear Dorothy, I succeeded in running up some very choice bills last month, as you will find if you consult my father. <laughs> that's not spending your money. That's wasting it. Why, I don't think you could give away $25 in the right way to save your life. But why on earth, remonstrated Harry, should I want to give away $25? Because, explained Dorothy, that would be real charity. It's nothing to charge a desk to your father and have it sent to me, but to give money to people you don't know is something. <laughs> why, any old fellow can give away money, protested Harry. Then, exclaimed Dorothy, We'll see if you can. I don't believe that you could give $25 in the course of an evening if you tried. Indeed, I could. Then try it. And Dorothy, dashing into the hall, took down his coat and hat and placed them in his reluctant hands. Hmm. It is now half past eight. You be here by 10 o'clock. But, but, Dorothy was edging him towards the door. How much money have you? She demanded. Harry gloomily put his hand in his pocket and counted out a handful of bills. Exactly $25 oh, and five cents. Very well. Now listen, these are the conditions. You go out and give the money to anybody you care to, whom you have never seen before. Don't give more than $2 to any one person and be back here by 10 o'clock with no more than five cents in your pocket. But, declared Harry, still backing towards the door, I want my $25. Harry, said Dorothy sweetly, I am surprised. And with that, she slammed the door in his face. I insist, muttered Harry, this is a most unusual proceeding. He walked down the steps and hesitated. Now, he thought, where shall I go? He considered a moment and finally started off towards Broadway. He had gone about half a block when he saw a gentleman in a top hat approaching. Harry hesitated. Then he made up his mind and stepping towards the man emitted what he intended for a pleasant laugh but what sounded more like a gurgle and loudly vociferated, Merry Christmas, <laughs> friend. <laughs> the same to you, answered he of the top hat. And he would have passed on, but Harry was not to be denied. My good fellow, he cleared his throat, would you like me to give you a little money? What? yelled the man. You might need some money, don't you know, to uh, uh, buy the children of uh, a rag doll. He finished brilliantly. The next moment, his hat went sailing into the gutter, and when he picked it up, the man was far away. Well, there's five minutes wasted, 
muttered Harry, as full of wrath towards Dorothy, he strode away. Uh, he strode along his way. He decided to try a different method with the next people he met. He would express himself more politely. Oh, a couple approached him. A young lady and her escort. Harry halted directly in their path, took off his hat, and addressed them. As it is Christmas, you know, and everybody gives a... Uh, away articles, why? Give him a dollar, Billy, and let's go on, said the young lady. Billy obediently thrust a dollar into Harry's hand, and at that moment, the girl gave a cry of surprise. Why, it's Harry Talbot, she exclaimed, begging! But Harry heard no more. When he realized he knew the girl, he turned and sped like an arrow up the street, cursing his foolhardiness and taking up the affair at all. He approached Broadway and started slowly down the gaily lighted thoroughfare, intending to give money to the street urchins he met. All around him the bustle was the bustle of preparation. Everywhere swarmed people, happy in the pleasant concert of their own generosity. Harry felt strangely out of place as he wandered aimlessly along. He was used to being catered to and bowed before, but here no one spoke to him, and one or two even had the audacity to smile at him and wish him a Merry Christmas. He nervously accosted a passing boy. Uh, I say, little boy, I'm going to give you some money. No, you ain't, said the boy sturdily. I don't want none of your money. Rather abashed, Harry continued down the street. He tried to present 50 cents to an inebriated man, but a policeman tapped him on the shoulder and told him to move on. He drew up beside a ragged individual and quietly whispered, Do you wish some money? I'm on, said the tramp. What's the job? Oh, there's no job, Harry reassured him. Trying to kid me, eh? growled the tramp resentfully. Well, get somebody else and he slunk off into the crowd. Next, Harry tried to squeeze 10 cents into the hand of a passing bellboy, but the youth pulled open his coat and displayed a sign, no tipping. Ha! Huh. With the air of a thief, Harry approached an Italian boot black and cautiously deposited 10 cents in his hand. At a safe distance, he saw the boy wonderingly pocket the dime and congratulated himself. He had but $24.90 yet to give away. His last success gave him a plan. He stopped at a newsstand where, in full sight of the vendor, he dropped a $2 bill and sped away in the crowd. After several minutes hard running, he came to a walk amidst the curious glances of bundle-laden passers-by and was mentally patting himself on the back, when he heard quick breathing behind him, and the very newsie he had just left thrust, it into, his, thrust into his hand the two-dollar bill and was off like a flash. Ah, the perspiration streamed from Harry's forehead, and he trudged along despondently. He got rid of 25 cents, however, by dropping it into a children's aid slot. He tried to get 50 cents in, but it was a small slot. 
His first large sum was two dollars to a Salvation Army Santa Claus, and after this, he kept a sharp lookout for them. But it was past their closing time, and he saw no more of them on his journey. He was now crossing Union Square, and after another half hour's patient work, he found himself with only fifteen dollars to give away. A wet snow was falling, which turned to slush as it touched the pavements, and the light dancing pumps he wore were drenched, the water oozing out of his shoe with every step he took. He reached Cooper Square and turned into the Bowery. The number of people on the streets was fast thinning, and all around him the shops were closing up and their occupants going home. Some boys jeered at him, but turning up his collar, he plodded on. In his ears rang the, the saying, mockingly yet kindly, It is more blessed to give than to receive. He turned up Third Avenue and counted his remaining money. It amounted to $3.70. Ah, ahead of him, he perceived through the thickening snow two men standing under a lamppost. Here was his chance! He could divide his $3.70 between them. He came up to them and tapped one on the shoulder. The man, a thin, ugly-looking fellow, turned suspiciously. Won't you have some money, you fellow, he said imperiously, for he was angry at humanity in general, and Dorothy in particular. The fellow turned savagely. Ah, he sneered. You're one of these stiffs trying a charity gag and then getting us pulled for begging. Come on, Jim, let's show them what we are. And they showed him. They hit him. They mashed him. They got him down and jumped on him. They broke his hat. They tore his coat. And Harry, gasping, striking, panting, went down in the slush. He thought of the people who had that very night wished him a Merry Christmas. He was certainly having it. Miss Dorothy Harmon closed her book with a snap. Hmm. It was past 11 and no Harry. What was keeping him? Hmm. He'd probably given up and gone home long ago. With this in mind, she reached up to turn out the light when suddenly... She heard a noise outside as if someone had fallen. Dorothy rushed to the window and pulled up the blind. There, coming up the steps, on his hands and knees was a wretched caricature of a man. He was hatless, coatless, collarless, tieless, and covered with snow. It was Harry! He opened the door and walked into the parlor, leaving a trail of wet snow behind him. Well, he said defiantly, Harry, she gasped, can it be you? Dorothy, he said solemnly, it is me. What, what has happened? Oh, nothing. I've just been giving away that $25. And Harry sat down on the sofa. But Harry, she faltered, your eye is all swollen. Oh, my eye? Let me see. Oh, that was on the 22nd dollar. I had some difficulty with two gentlemen. However, 
We afterwards struck up quite an acquaintance. I had some luck after that. I dropped two dollars in a blind beggar's hat. You've been all evening giving away that money. My dear Dorothy, I have decidedly been all evening giving away that money. He rose and brushed a lump of snow from his shoulder. I really must be going now. I have two, uh, friends outside waiting for me. He walked towards the door. Two friends? Why, uh, they are the two gentlemen I had difficulty with. They are coming home with me to spend Christmas. They are really nice fellows, though they might seem a trifle rough at first. Dorothy drew a quick breath. For a minute, no one spoke. Then he took her in his arms. <gasps> Dearest, she whispered, you did all this for me. A minute later, he sprang down the steps and arm in arm with his friends walked off in the darkness. Good night, Dorothy, he called back. And uh, Merry Christmas. <gasps> oh, <well. laughs> Muriel Spark, whose name should ever live um, and always be praised, was an impoverished, little-known uh, poet and writer um, who... Uh, born in Scotland also, along with Ali Smith, until she beat out 7,000 entries for the following short story, which was published in the London Observer, and won a prize of 250 pounds, which convinced her that she could make a living as a fiction writer um, because she hadn't earned anything on the same story as a poem. So that turned Spark to fiction, and later, you may, re you may recall um, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, which became a movie with Maggie Smith and, and a number of other rather extraordinary novels and short stories. So this is the turning point. This short story, which is quite uh, deliriously wonderful, and um, reading it, we have, for the very first time, the director of the entire short stories live series, and he has been for the last... 10, 11, 12 years, Kurt Beatty. So let's have a hand for Kurt. Now, before I turn you over, I just want to say Kurt's an actor, uh, uh, a writer, a playwright, um, has just, is now the artistic director emeritus of ACT Theater, and uh, is um, and, and until this year, we could never get him for Christmas because he was always playing Scrooge at, at ACT. So it's such a pleasure to, to have you show up. But there's one secret I learned talking to Kurt the other day, which is that all of this stuff notwithstanding, all of these extraordinary, you know, legendary pursuits of, of, uh, that Kurt has indulged in, to me, they pale before... What I just discovered, he was a professional boy soprano at the Saint, at St. John's School of Divine in New York, uh, their boys' choir. And that takes my, <laughs> takes the cake. I think that's, so, I, 
So my question, which I've never asked, did you, did you experience like a, a, were there moments of terror as your voice was approaching, you know, the end when you could no longer sing the boy's part? Actually, yes, because uh, as even I and my idiot self at that age knew that uh, not to be able to sing uh, William Byrd and Thomas Tallis uh, it was uh, and and Thomas Wilkes was a, as a soprano was a was a was a loss, but then uh, I began to found croaking my way through my voice changing that I could actually sing them as a bass, so uh, that was okay. It's wonderful. And then you know there were the Stones and the Beatles too, which changed me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Seraph and the Zambezi by Muriel Spark. You may have heard of Samuel Kramer, half-poet, half-journalist, who had to do with a dancer called the Fanfarlo? No? But, as you will see, it doesn't matter if you have not. He was said to be going strong in Paris early in the 19th century, and when I met him in 1946, he was still going strong, but this time in a different way. He was the same man, but modified. For instance, in those days, more than a hundred years ago, Kramer had persisted for several decades and without affectation in being about 25 years old. But when I knew him, he was clearly undergoing his 42-year-old phase. At this time, he was keeping a petrol pump some four miles south of the Zambezi River, where it crashes over a precipice at the Victoria Falls. Kramer had some spare rooms where he put up visitors to the falls when the hotel was full. I was sent to him because it was Christmas week and there was no room at the hotel. I found him trying the starter of a large, lumpy Mercedes outside his corrugated iron garage, and at first sight I judged him to be a Belgian from the Congo. He had the look of north and south, light hair with canvas-colored skin. Later, however, he told me that his father was a German and his mother Chilean. It was this information, rather than the S. Kramer above the garage door, which made me think I had heard of him. The rains had been very poor, and that December was fiercely hot. On the third night before Christmas, I sat on the step outside my room, looking through the broken mosquito wire network at the lightning in the distance. When an atmosphere maintains an excessive temperature for a long spell, something seems to happen to the natural noises of life. Sound fails to carry in its usual quantity, but comes as if bound and gagged. That night, the Christmas beetles, which fall on their backs on every step with a high tic-tac, seemed to be shock-absorbed. I saw one fall, and the little bump reached my ears a fraction behind time. The noises of minor wild beasts from the bush were all hushed up, too, in fact, it wasn't until the bush noises all stopped simultaneously, as they frequently do when a leopard is about, that I knew there had been any sound at all. Overlying this general muted hum, 
Kramer's sundowner party progressed further up the step. The heat distorted every word. The glasses made a tinkle that was not of the substance of glass, but of bottles wrapped in tissue paper. Sometimes for a moment, a shriek or a cackle would hang torpidly in space. But these were unreal sounds as if projected from a distant country, as if they were pocket torches seen through a London fog. Kramer came over to my end of the step and asked me to join his party. I said I would be glad to, and meant it, even though I had been glad to sit alone. Heat so persistent and so intense sucks up the will. Five people sat in wicker armchairs drinking highballs and chewing salted peanuts. I recognized a red-haired trooper from Livingston, just out from England, and two of Kramer's lodgers, a tobacco planter and his wife from Bulawayo. In the custom of those parts, the other two were introduced by their first names. Manny, a short, dark man with square face and build, I thought might be Portuguese from the East Coast. The woman, Fanny, was picking bits out of the frayed wicker chair, and as she lifted her glass, her hand shook a little, making her bracelets chime. She would be about 50, a well-tended woman, very neat. Her gray hair, tinted with blue, was done in a fringe above a face puckered with malaria. In the general way of passing the time with strangers in that countryside, I exchanged with the tobacco people the names of acquaintances who lived within a 600-mile radius of where we sat, reducing this list to names mutually known to us. The trooper contributed his news from the region between Lusaka and Livingston. Meanwhile, an argument was in process between Kramer, Fanny, and Manny, of which Fanny seemed to be getting the better. It appeared there was to be a play or concert on Christmas Eve in which the three were taking part. I several times heard the words, troop of angels, shepherds, ridiculous price, and my girls, which seemed to be key words in the argument. Suddenly on hearing the trooper mention a name, Fanny broke off her talk and turned to us. She was one of my girls, she said. I gave her lessons for three years. Manny rose to leave, and before Fanny followed him, she picked a card from her handbag and held it out to me between her fingernails. If any of your friends are interested, said Fanny hazily. I looked at this as she drove off with the man, and above an address about four miles up the river, I read, Madame La Fanfarlo, Paris, London, dancing instructress, ballet, ballroom, transport provided by arrangement. Next day, I came across Kramer, still trying to locate the trouble with the Mercedes. Are you the man Baudelaire wrote about? I asked him. He stared past me at the open waist veldt with a look of tired patience. Yes, he replied. What made you think of it? The name Fanfarlo on Fanny's card. I said, didn't you know her in Paris? Oh, yes, said Kramer, but those days are finished. She married Manuela de Monteverde. That's Manny. They settled here about 20 years ago. He keeps a kaffir store. I remembered then that in the Romantic Age it had pleased Kramer to fluctuate between the practice of verse and that of belles together with the living up to such practices. I asked him, 
Have you given up your literary career? As a career, yes, he answered. It was an obsession I was glad to get rid of. He stroked the blue bonnet of the Mercedes and added, the greatest literature is the occasional kind, a mere afterthought. Again, he looked across the veldt where, unseen, a gray-crested lorry known by its cry as the go-away bird was piping, go away, go away. Life, Kramer continued, is the important thing. And do you write occasional verses, I inquired. When occasion demands it, he said. In fact, I've just written a nativity mask. We're given a performance on Christmas Eve, in there. He pointed to his garage, where a few natives were already beginning to shift petrol cans and tires. Being members neither of the cast nor of the audience, they were taking their time. A pile of folded seats had been dumped alongside. Late on the morning of Christmas Eve, I returned from the falls to find a crowd of natives quarreling outside the garage with Kramer swearing loud and heavily in the middle. He held a sulky man by the shirt sleeve, while with the other hand he described his vituperation on the hot air. Some mission natives had been sent over to give a hand with laying the stage, and these, with their standard three-school English washed faces and white drill shorts, had innocently provoked Kramer's raw, rag-dressed boys. Kramer's method, which ended with the word police, succeeded in sending them back to work still uttering drum-like gutturals at each other. The stage, made of packing cases with planks nailed across, was being put at the back of the building, where a door led to the yard, the privy, and the native huts. The space between this door and the stage was closed off by a row of black government blankets hung on a line. This was to be the dressing room. I agreed to come round there that evening to help with the lighting, the makeup, and the pinning on of angels' wings. The Fanfarlo's dancing pupils were to make an angel chorus with carols and dancing, while she herself, as the virgin, was to give a representative ballet performance. Owing to her husband's very broken English, he had been given a silent role as a shepherd, supported by three other shepherds chosen for like reasons. Kramer's part was the most prominent, for he had the longest speeches, being the first seraph. It had been agreed that since he had written the mask, he could best deliver most of it. But I gathered there had been some trouble at rehearsals over the cost of the production, with Fanny wanting elaborate scenery as being due to her girls. The performance was set to begin at 8. I arrived behind the stage at 7.15 to find the angels assembled in ballet dresses with wings of crinkled paper in various shades. The fanfarlo wore a long white transparent skirt with a sequined top. I was helping to fix on the wise man's beards when I saw Kramer. He had on a toga-like garment made up of several thicknesses of mosquito net, but not thick enough to hide his white shorts underneath. He had put on his makeup early, and this was melting on his face in the rising heat. I always get nerves at this point, he said. I'm going to practice my opening speech. I heard him mount the stage and begin reciting. Above the voices of excited children, I could only hear the rhythm of his voice, and I was intent on helping the Fanfarlo to paint her girls' faces. It seemed impossible. As fast as we lifted the sticks of paint, they turned liquid. 
It was getting really abnormally hot. Open that door, yelled the fanfarlo. The back door was opened, and a crowd of curious natives pressed round the entrance. I left the fanfarlo ordering them off, for I was determined to get to the front of the building to, for some air. I mounted the stage and began to cross it when I was aware of a powerful radiation of heat coming from my right. Looking round, I saw Kramer apparently shouting at someone in the attitude of his dealings with the natives that morning, but he could not advance because of this current of heat. And because of the heat, I could not at first make out who Kramer was rowing with. This was the sort of heat that goes for the eyes. But as I got further towards the front of the stage, I saw what was standing there. This was a living body. The most noticeable thing was its constancy. It seemed not to conform to the law of perspective, but remained the same size when I approached as when I withdrew. And altogether, unlike other forms of life, it had a completed look. No part was undergoing a process. The outline lacked the signs of confusion and ferment, which are commonly the signs of living things. And this was also the principle of its beauty. The eyes took up nearly the whole of the head, extending far over the cheekbones. From the back of the head came two muscular wings, which from time to time folded themselves over the eyes, making a draft of scorching air. There was hardly any neck. Another pair of wings, tough and supple, spread from below the shoulders, and a third pair extended from the calves of the legs, appearing to sustain the body. The feet looked too fragile to bear up such a concentrated degree of being. European residents of Africa are often irresistibly prompted to speak kitchen kaffir to anything strange. Hamba, shouted Kramer, meaning, go away. Now get off the stage and stop your noise, said the living body peaceably. Who in the hell are you, said Kramer, gasping through the heat. The same as in heaven, came the reply. A seraph's, that's to say. Tell that to someone else, Kramer panted. Do I look like a fool? I will. No, nor a seraph either said the seraph. The place was filling with heat from the seraph. Kramer's paint was running into his eyes and he wiped them on his net robe. Walking backward to a less hot place, he cried, once and for all. That's correct, said the seraph. This is my show, continued Kramer. Since when, the seraph said. Right from the start, Kramer breathed at him. Well, it's been mine from the beginning, said the seraph, and the beginning came first. Climbing down from the hot stage, Kramer caught his seraphic robe on a nail and tore it. Listen here, he said, I can't conceive of an abnormality like you being a true seraph. True, said the seraph. By this time, I had been driven by the heat to the front entrance. Kramer joined me there. 
a number of natives had assembled. The audience had begun to arrive in cars, and the rest of the cast had come around the building from the back. It was impossible to see far inside the building owing to the seraph's heat and impossible to re-enter. Kramer was still haranguing the seraph from the door, and there was much speculation amongst the new arrivals as to which of the three familiar categories the present trouble came under, namely the natives, Whitehall, or leopards. This is my property, cried Kramer, and these people have paid for their seats. They've come to see a mask. In that case, said the seraph, I'll cool down and they can come and see a mask. My mask, said Kramer. Ah, no, mine, said the seraph. Yours won't do. Will you go, or shall I call the police, said Kramer with finality. I have no alternative, said the seraph, more finally still. Word had gone round that a mad leopard was in the garage. People got back into their cars and parked at a safe distance. The tobacco planter went to fetch a gun. A number of young troopers had the idea of blinding the mad leopard with petrol and ganged up some natives to fill petrol cans from the pump and pass them chainwise to the garage. This'll fix him, said the trooper. That's right, let him have it, said Kramer from his place by the door. I shouldn't do that, said the seraph. You'll cause a fire. The first lot of petrol began to be flung into the heat, and it flared up. The seats caught light first, and then the air itself began to burn within the metal walls till the whole interior was flame feeding on flame. Another carload of troopers arrived just then and promptly got a gang of natives to fill petrol cans with water. Slowly they drenched the fire. The Funfaro mustered her angels a little way up the road. She was trying to reassure their parents and see what was happening at the same time, furious at losing her opportunity to dance. She aimed a hard poke at the back of one of the angels whose parents were in England. It was some hours before the fire was put out. While the corrugated metal walls still glowed, twisted, and furled, it was impossible to see what had happened to the seraph. And after they had ceased to glow, it was too dark and hot to see far into the wreck. Are you insured? One of Kramer's friends asked him. Oh, yes, Kramer replied. My policy covers everything except acts of God. <laughs> that means lightning and flood. He's fully covered, said Kramer's friend to another friend. Many people had gone home, and the rest were going. The troopers drove off singing Good King Wenceslas, and the mission boys ran down the road singing Good Christian Men Rejoice. It was about midnight and still very hot. The tobacco planters suggested a drive to the falls where it was cool. Kramer and the Fenfarlow joined us, and we bumped along the rough path from Kramer's to the main highway. There, the road is tarred only in two strips to take car wheels. The thunder of the falls reached us about two miles before we reached them. After all my work on the mask and everything, Kramer was saying. Oh, shut up, said the fanfarlo. Just then, by the glare of our headlights, I saw the seraph again, going at about 70 miles an hour and skimming the tarmac strips with two of his six wings in swift motion, two folded over his face and two covering his feet. That's him, said Kramer. We'll get him yet. 
We left the car near the hotel and followed a track through the dense vegetation of the rainforest where the spray from the falls descends perpetually. It was like a convalescence after fever, that frail rain after the heat. The seraph was far ahead of us, and through the trees I could see where his heat was making steam of the spray. We came to the cliff's edge, where opposite us, and from the same level, the full weight of the river came blasting into the gorge between. There was no sign of the seraph. Was he far below in the heaving pit, or where? Then I noticed that along the whole mile of the waterfall's crest, the spray was rising higher than usual. This I took to be steam from the seraph's heat. I was right, for presently, by the mute flashes of summer lightning, we watched him ride the Zambezi away from us among the rocks that looked like crocodiles and the crocodiles that looked like rocks. James Thurber was one of the most popular humorists of his time, of all time. He was a cartoonist, New Yorker writer, uh, journalist, playwright, author. And our first reading this afternoon is a version of The Night Before Christmas in the style of Ernest Hemingway. And here's Paul wearing his hat and covered with his blanket, and he's going to get us started this afternoon. Paul, Paul Dorpat. You can start now, Paul. Where's my script? Your script script? is in your hat, Paul. Your script is in your hat. Oh. You're right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. That's kind of threatening. Hi there. All right, here we go. Now, you're going to participate in this to some extent in the middle. So stay alert, because your time's coming. This is called A Visit from St. Nicholas in the Ernest Hemingway Manor by James Thurber. It was the night before Christmas. The house was very quiet. No creatures were stirring in the house. There weren't even any mice stirring. The stockings had been hung carefully by the chimney. The children hoped that St. Nicholas would come and fill them. The children were in their beds. Their beds were in the room next to ours. (laughs) Mama and I were in our beds. Mama wore a kerchief. I had my cap on. I could hear the children moving. We didn't move. We wanted the children to think we were asleep. Father, the children said. There was no answer. He's there, all right, they thought. Father, they said, and banged on their beds. What do you want, I asked. 
We have visions of sugar plums, <laughs> the children said. Go to sleep, said Mama. We can't sleep, said the children. They stopped talking, but I could hear them moving. They made sounds. <laughs> That's the highlight that... Uh, <laughs> Can you sleep? asked the children. No. I said, you ought to sleep. I know I ought to sleep. Can we have some sugar plums? <laughs> you can't have any sugar plums, said Mama. We just asked you. There was a long silence. I could hear the children moving again. Is St. Nicholas asleep? asked the children. No, Mama said. Be quiet. What the hell would he be asleep tonight for, I asked. He might be, the children said. He isn't, I said. Let's try to sleep, said Baba. The house became quiet once more. I could hear the rustling noises the children made when they moved in their beds. <clears throat> out on the lawn, a clatter arose. I got out of bed and went to the window. I opened the shutters, then I threw up the sash. The moon shone on the snow. The moon gave the luster of midday to objects in the snow. There was a miniature sleigh in the snow and eight tiny reindeer. A man was driving them. He was lively and quick. He whistled and shouted at the reindeer and called them by their names. Their names, and here's where you come in, okay? <laughs> you know their names. Let's, let's say it all together. I'll give you the first two, and then you say them, okay, in order. The first two are, what are they? Dasher and Dancer, you remember that? Okay, their names were Dasher, Very good. Let's give ourselves a hand, a big hand. Gene, that was all right that I did that, isn't it? Gene, is Gene around? Yeah, I'm right here. Right is that okay? Yeah, that's great. All right, thank you. <laughs> okay, he told them to dash away to the top of the porch, and then he told them to dash away to the top of the wall. They did. The sleigh was full of toys. Who is it? Mama asked. Eh, some guy, I said, a little guy. I pulled my head in out of the window and listened. I heard the reindeer on the roof. I could hear their hoofs pawing and prancing on the roof. Shut the window, said Mama. I stood still and listened. What do you hear? Reindeer. I said. I shut the window and walked about. It was cold. Mama sat up in the bed and, and in the bed and looked at me. How would they get on the roof? <laughs> Mama asked. They fly. Get into bed. You'll catch cold. No, no, that's not. 
Get into bed, you'll catch it. Get into bed, you'll catch cold. Mom lay down in bed. I didn't get into bed, I kept walking around. What do you mean they fly, asked Mama. Just fly, that's all. Mama turned away toward the wall. She didn't say anything. I went out into the room where the chimney was. The little man came down the chimney and stepped into the room. He was dressed all in fur. His clothes were covered with ashes and soot from the chimney, and on his back was a pack, like a peddler's pack. There were toys in it. His cheeks and nose were red, and he had dimples. His eyes twinkled. His mouth was little, like a bow, and his beard was very white. Between his teeth was a stumpy pipe. The smoke from the pipe encircled his head in a wreath. He laughed, and his belly shook. It shook like a bowl of red jelly. I laughed. He winked his eye, then gave a twist to his head. He didn't say anything. He turned to the chimney and filled the stockings and turned away from the chimney. Laying his finger aside his nose, he gave a nod. Then he went up the chimney, and I went to the chimney and looked up. I saw him get into the sleigh. He whistled at his team, and the team flew away. The team flew as lightly as thistledown. The driver called out, Merry Christmas and good night. I went back to bed. <laughs> what was it? asked Mama. St. Nicholas. She smiled. Yeah, yeah. I said, St. Nicholas, you're right. She sighed and turned in the bed. I saw him, I said. Sure, I did see him. Sure you saw him. Sure you saw him. See, I forgot her voice again. <laughs> We're coming to the end, you know. I won't make mistakes like that. I saw him. No, I saw him, I said. <clears throat> sure, I did see him. <laughs> sure you saw him. She turned further, further to the wall. Father, said the children, there you go, Mama said. You and your flying reindeer. Go to sleep, I said. Can we see St. Nicholas when he comes? The children asked. You've got to be asleep, I said. You've got to be asleep when he comes. You can't see him unless you're unconscious. <laughs> Father knows, Mama said. <laughs> I pulled the covers over my mouth. It was warm under the covers. As I went to sleep, I wondered if Mama was right. That's it. The 12 Days of Christmas is what is known as a cumulative song, in which a series of increasingly grand gifts are given uh, on each of the 12 days after Christmas. 
Now, a side note is the PNC Bank of Pittsburgh has actually calculated the value <laughs> since 1984 of the 12 days of Christmas. So how much would these gifts actually cost? Now, they, they haven't included the cost of slavery. So the milkmaids milking and the, the lords and ladies uh, leaping and dancing, that's, they're, they're, it's considered they're hired. And so it's a day higher, and, and if, you, if you just add those numbers up, just for uh, the, the total, not the cumulative total, because every day, remember, stacks up exponentially. Just for the, the total of all cost of all goods and services in, uh, they call it the Christmas price index. In 2015, it was $34,130.99. And including repetition, which is in 450 or so different items, the cost is $155,407.18. And that was last year's value. So we may see a little rise this year. They haven't calculated it yet. Well, the remarkable Scottish writer Ali Smith has been described as Scotland's uh, Nobel laureate in waiting. Of course, by the Scots, they would describe it. But she has made her own calculation of those values. And sharing those with us is the remarkable Khan Doan, who's been dazzling audiences throughout the Northwest for a number of years. She just finished a run of A Tale for the Time Being at Book It and is just about to head down to uh, the Portland Artist Repertory Theater to appear in a new play by Seattle playwright Yusuf El-Gindi. So, Khan. Do you call that a Christmas present? On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a whole month whose daylight ended at roughly half past three. I looked out the window and watched it fall. Great, I said, really cheery present, thanks. Pleasure, my true love said. On the second day of Christmas, my true love dragged into the house a skeletal-looking tree with its roots all earth and almost all the leaves already off its branches. What was left of the leaves, dry, near dead, spent the rest of the afternoon dwindling off it onto the living room carpet. You know me so well, I said. My true love looked pleased, tucked its roots into a pot of earth and filled the saucer at the base of the pot with water. On the third day, my true love oh, came into the house shouting, close your eyes, close your eyes, put your hands out, both your hands, palms upwards, flat. Another of your so-called presents, I said, eyes closed. My true love put something so cold into my arms that it was as if I'd just been gifted coldness itself. It was heavy and slippery and it burned cold all through me wherever it touched me. It was like holding pain. I opened my eyes. 
I was holding a large slab of white ice, about the size of and a lot heavier than a West Highland Terrier. Do you like it? My true love said. Oh, your retail talents are dreadful, I said. Darkness, a bare tree, ice. Can you maybe next time buy me a jersey or a scarf or socks or a hairdryer? And look, this present is melting all over the floor. It isn't going to last half an hour even. Well, obviously, I mean, that's the whole point, my true love said. You are joking, aren't you, I said. On the fourth day, my true love stood outside in the cold and dark and sang a song at our house. Then why should men on earth be sad, my true love sang. The holly bears the crown. My true love's gone mad, I thought. I worried. We were new to each other. What if it wasn't true love after all? I worried. Then I went through to heat up some wine and sort out some cakes or something. It was cold out there. On the fifth and sixth days, one after the other, my true love took me to the theater, to two full houses of roaring, laughing children and adults who'd been changed back into raucous children by a, a man dressed as a woman and a girl dressed as a boy. Then the girl dressed as a boy suddenly rose off the stage on a wire and up into the gods of the theater. I put my hand up and felt my own face. It was wet with tears. I was embarrassed. I looked round to see if anyone had noticed me crying. All the faces round me were shining too. See? my true love said in my ear. On the seventh day, my true love kept me up really late watching films, one after the other. One was about a family who are supposed to move house, but the plan changes on Christmas Eve when the father suddenly understands they're all happier where they are. The other was about a ruined, desperate man with no money who was given a lot of single-dollar notes by everybody in the town he lives in so that his business will be saved. My true love and I went to bed at 4 a.m., dizzy with tiredness and happy endings, singing a song together. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Can we do this again sometime, I said. Yes, my true love said, every Christmas. On the eighth day, we stayed awake late, telling stories of Christmases past. We told each other about Christmases we'd spent with family and with other lovers, and Christmases we'd spent alone. I thought about the old old story about the cold birth of the outsider, no room at the inn, the poor people and the rich people bringing the right gift, 
and the kindly animals, too, and all of them following nothing but the light of a star in the night sky. On the ninth day, I canceled the things I'd ordered online so proficiently in October. The new widescreen TV, the Estonian turtle doves, the iPod, the specially flown in Brazilian calling birds, the hens from France, very expensive, the geese and their eggs, the noise-canceling headphones, the oven-ready roast swans, the performing lords, ladies, drummers, pipers, and maids, and the second satellite radio for the kitchen. There's one in the bathroom already. On the 10th and 11th days, I wrote many emails in an attempt to get my money back for the cancellations. I got most of it refunded. I'm hopeful about the rest. Meanwhile, we hung lights and decorations in the bare branches of the tree in the house. They looked like a promise of leaves or fruit. Then. Out we went for a walk in the dark. It was frosty. It was the time of year when things could change their nature. When we looked down, we saw the streets beneath our feet were paved with scattered constellations. The windows of the houses we passed gave yellow light out into the darkness. And already, my true love said, taking my arm, we're past the shortest. Light is shaving the darkness off already, a couple of minutes a day. Have you noticed? No, I said. I was almost sorry. The windows lit up in the dark look so fine. So this, in the end, on the twelfth day, is what I gave my true love for Christmas. Several logs of wood and a small wrapped box, smaller than the palm of a hand. My true love took the logs and put them down, looked at the box, looked suspicious and said, what is it? It better not be five gold rings. I hope you know me better than that. Open it, I said. Ah. Perfect, my true love said. My true love shook out one of the matches. We lit a fire in the hearth. It started small and grew good and strong. The light it gave off made our shadows move companionably all night behind us on the warm walls of the room. And a partridge, I sang, and my shadow did what I did, but as if I had a larger self. In a pear tree, my true love sang back in the light and the dark. Following the breakout success of his 1969 novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, Kurt Vonnegut established himself as one of the great humanist voices of the 20th century. And uh, he famously advocated kindness in all things, in human dealings, 
and was quoted, he actually quoted his son, uh, who was also a writer, and often said, we are here to help each other through this thing, whatever it is. He might be called the philosopher of the good. But none of that takes away from this, his delightful writing style and his, his keen and incisive sense of humor. Uh, and our next story is one of his early ones, which was just published posthumously. It hadn't been seen for 35, 40 years. And it just came out in a, in a collection of his writings edited by his son called um, When Mortals Sleep. And this is the title story from that collection. When Mortals Sleep. If Fred Hackleman and Christmas could have avoided each other, they would have. He was a bachelor, a city editor, and a newspaper genius. And I worked for him as a reporter for three insufferable years. As nearly as I could tell, he and the spirit of Christmas had as little in common as a farm cat and the Audubon Society. He was like a farm cat in a lot of ways. He was solitary, deceptively complacent and lazy, and quick with the sharp claws of his authority and wit. He was in his middle 40s when I worked for him, and he had seemingly lost respect not just for Christmas, but for government, matrimony, business, patriotism, and just about any other important institution you could name. The only ideals I ever heard him mention were terse leads, good spelling, accuracy, and speed in reporting the stupidity of mankind. I can remember only one Christmas during which he radiated faintly anything like joy and goodwill. But that was a coincidence. A jailbreak happened to take place on December 25th that year. But the Christmas season I remember most is the last one I spent with Hackleman, the season in which the great crime was committed, the robbery proclaimed by Hackleman gleefully as the most infamous crime in the history of the city. Must have been about the 1st of December that I heard him say as he went over his morning mail, God damn it, how much glory can come to a man in one short lifetime? He called me over to his desk. It isn't right that all the honors that pour into these offices every day should be shared only by management, he said. It's to you, the working stiffs, that honors really belong. That's uh, very kind of you, I said uneasily. So in lieu of a raise, which you richly deserve, I'm going to make you my assistant. <laughs> assistant city editor? Ah, bigger than that, my boy, you are now assistant publicity director of the annual Christmas outdoor lighting contest. <laughs> Just tendered to me by the Chamber of Commerce. The door of opportunity is wide open. If your publicity makes this year's annual Christmas outdoor lighting contest the biggest, brightest one yet, there'll be no ceiling on how high you can rise in the world of journalism. Now, as a dutiful assistant publicity director, I boned up on the history of the event, learned the contest had been held every year 
except for the war years since 1938. The first winner won with a two-story Santa Claus outlined in lights on the front of his house. The next winner had a great pair of plywood bells outlined in lights and hung from the eaves, which swung back and forth while a loudspeaker concealed in the shrubbery went ding-dong. And so it went. Each winner bettered the winner of the year before until no entrant had a prayer of winning without the help of an electrical engineer, and the power and light company had every bit of its equipment danger dangerously overloaded on the night of the judging Christmas Eve. As I said, Hackelman wanted nothing to do with it. But unfortunately for Hackelman, the publisher of the paper had just been elected president of the Chamber of Commerce, and he was annoyed to learn that one of his employees was squirming out of a civic duty. The publisher rarely appeared in the city room, but his visits were always memorable, particularly the visit he made two weeks before Christmas. Hackelman, said the publisher reproachfully, for 10 years you've been city editor, and for 10 years you've been ducking the civic duties that come to a man in such a position, foisting them off on the nearest reporter. He pointed at me. It's a slap in the face of the community, sending out kids like this to do work that most citizens would consider a great honor. I haven't got time, said Hackelman sullenly. Make the time. Nobody asks you to spend 18 hours a day in the office. That's your idea. It isn't necessary. Get out with your fellow men once in a while, Hackelman, especially now. It's the Christmas season, man. What's Christmas to me, said Hackelman. I'm not a religious man, and I'm not a family man, and eggnog gives me gastritis, so the hell with Christmas. The publisher was stunned. The hell with Christmas? Certainly, said Hackelman. Hackelman, said the publisher evenly, I order you to take part in running the contest. To get into the swing of Christmas, it'll do you good. I quit, said Hackelman, and don't think that will do you much good. Hackelman returned to his desk 27 hours after quitting. He was slightly drunk and surly and looked no one in the eye. As I passed his desk, quietly and respectfully, he mumbled something to me. Beg your pardon, I said. I said, Merry Christmas, said Hackelman. And a Merry Christmas to you, I said. Well, sir, he said, it won't be long now, will it, until old soup for brains with a long white beard will come a-jingling over our housetops with goodies for us all. No, I, I guess not. A man who whips little reindeer is capable of anything, said Hackelman. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I suppose. Bring me up to date, will you, kid? What's this goddamn contest all about? The committee that was supposed to be running the contest was top-heavy with local celebrities who were too busy and important to do a lick of work on the contest. The mayor, the president of a big manufacturing company, and the chairman of the real estate board. Hackleman kept me on as his assistant, and it was up to us and some small fry from the Chamber of Commerce to do the spade work. Every night, we went out to look at the entries, and there were thousands of them. We were trying to make a list of the 20 best displays from which the committee would choose a winner on Christmas Eve. The Chamber of Commerce underlings scouted the south side of town while Hackelman and I did the north. It should have been pleasant. The weather was crisp, not bitter. The stars were out every night, bright, hard, and cold against a black velvet sky. Snow, while cleared from the streets, lay on yards and rooftops, making all the world seem soft and clean, and our car radio sang Christmas carols.
but it wasn't pleasant because Hackelman talked most of the time, making a bitter indictment against Christmas. One time I was listening to a broadcast of a children's choir singing Silent Night, and I was as close to heaven as I could get without being pure and dead. <laughs> Hackelman suddenly changed stations to fill the car with a clangor of a jazz band. What'd you do that for, I said. They're running it into the ground, said Hackleman peevishly. We've heard it eight times already. They sell Christmas the way they sell cigarettes. Just keep hammering away at the same old line over and over again. I've got Christmas coming out of my ears. We were pulling up before the last house we planned to look at that night. It was a salmon pink mansion with a spike fence, iron flamingos, and five television aerials combining in one monster the worst features of Spanish architecture, electronics, and sudden wealth. <laughs> there was no Christmas lighting display that we could see, only ordinary lights inside the house. We knocked on the door to make sure we'd found the right place, and were told by a butler that there was indeed a lighting display on the other side of the house, and that he would have to ask the master for permission to turn it on. A moment later, the master appeared, fat and hairy and with two prominent upper front teeth, looking like a groundhog in a crimson dressing gown. Mr. Fleetwood, sir, said the butler to his master, these gentlemen here, the master waved his man to silence. How've you been, Hackleman, he said. It's rather late to be calling, but my door is always open to old friends. Cribbon said Hackleman incredulously. Lou Gribben, how long have you been living here? The name is Fleetwood now, Hackleman. J. Sprague Fleetwood, and I'm strictly legit. There was a story the last time we met, but there isn't one tonight. I've been out for a year, living quietly and decently. Mad Dog Gribben has been out for a year, and I didn't know it, said Hackleman. Don't look at me, I said, I cover the school board and fire department. I've paid my debt to society, said Gribben. Hackleman toyed with the visor of a suit of armor guarding the entrance into the baronial living room. Uh, looks to me like you paid your debt to society two cents on the dollar, he said. <laughs> investments, said Gribben. Legitimate investments in the stock market. How'd your broker get the bloodstains out of your money to find out what the denominations were, Hackleman said. If you're going to abuse my hospitality with rudeness, Hackleman, I'll have you thrown out, said Gribben. Now, what do you want? They wish to see the lighting display, sir, said the butler. Hackleman looked very sheepish when this mission was announced. Yeah, he mumbled, we're on a damn fool committee. I thought the judging was to take place Christmas Eve, said Gribben. I didn't plan to turn it on till then as a, as a pleasant surprise to the community. Yeah. A mustard gas generator, said Hackleman. <laughs> All right, wise guy, said Gribben haughtily. Tonight you're going to see what kind of a citizen J. Sprague Fleetwood really is. It was a world of vague forms and shadows of blue in the snowy yard of J. Sprague Fleetwood, alias Mad Dog Gribben. It was midnight, 
and Hackleman and I stamped our feet and blew on our hands to keep warm while Gribbon and three servants hurried about the yard, tightening electrical connections and working over what seemed to be statues with screwdrivers and oil cans. Gribbon insisted that we stand far away from the display in order to get the impact of the whole whenever it was ready to be turned on. We couldn't tell what we were about to see, and we were particularly tantalized by what the butler was doing, filling an enormous weather balloon from a tank of helium gas. The balloon arose majestically, captive at the end of a cable as the butler turned the crank of a winch. What did he get sent to prison for? I whispered to Hackleman. Ran the numbers in town for a while, and had about 20 people killed so he could keep his franchise. So they put him away for five years for not paying his income taxes. <laughs> Lights ready? Bald Gribbon standing on a porch, his arms upraised, commanding a miracle. Lights ready, said a voice in the shrubbery. Sound ready? Sound ready. Balloon ready? Balloon aloft, sir. Let her go, said Gribbon. Demons shrieked from the treetops. Suns exploded. Hackleman and I cowered, instinctively threw our arms across our faces. We uncovered our eyes slowly, fearfully, and saw stretching before us in blinding, glaring light a life-sized nativity scene. Loudspeakers on every side blurred ear-splitting carols. Plaster cattle and sheep were everywhere, wagging their heads while shepherds raised and lowered their right arms like railroad crossing gates, jerkily pointing at the sky. The Virgin Mary and Joseph looked down sweetly on the child in the manger while mechanical angels flapped their wings and mechanical wise men bobbed up and down like pistons. <laughs> Look, cried Hackleman above the din, pointing where the shepherds pointed, where the balloon had disappeared into the sky. There, over the salmon pink palace of Mad Dog Gribbon, hung in the Christmas heavens from a bang of, bag of glass, bag of gas, <laughs> shone an imitation of the star of Bethlehem. Suddenly, all was black and still again. My mind was numb. Hackleman stared blankly at the place where the star had been, speechless. Gribben trotted toward us. Anything else in town can touch that? He panted proudly. Nope, said Hackleman bleakly. Think of a win? Yep. <laughs> Unless somebody's got an atomic explosion in the form of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. People will come from miles around to see it, said Gribben. Just tell them in the newspaper story to follow the star. <laughs> Listen, Gribben, said Hackleman. You know there isn't any money that goes with first prize, don't you? Nothing but a lousy little scroll worth maybe a buck. Gribben looked offended. Of course, he said. This is a public service, Hackleman. Hackleman grunted, come on, kid. Let's call it a night, eh? Well, it was a real break, us finding the certain winner of the contest a week before the judging was to take place. It meant the judges and assistants like myself could spend most of Christmas Eve with their families instead of riding around town for hours trying to decide which was the best of 20 or so equally good entries. All we had to do now was drive to Gribben's mansion, be blinded and deafened, shake his hand, and give him his scroll, and return home in time to trim the tree, fill the stocking, and put away several rounds of eggnog. 
as thoughts of Christmas made Hackelman's neurotic staff gentle and sentimental, and the preposterous rumor that he had a heart of gold gained wide circulation, Hackelman behaved in a typical holiday fashion, declaring that heads were going to roll because Mad Dog Gribben had been out of prison and back in town for a year without a single reporter's finding out about it. By God, he said, I'm going to have to go out in the street again. The paper will fold up for want of news. Desperate as Hackelman made us, we couldn't find a hint of skullduggery in Gribben's life since he'd left prison. The only conclusion to draw was that a crime paid so well that Gribben could retire in his early 40s and live luxuriously and lawfully for the rest of his days. His money really does come from stocks and bonds, I told Hackelman wearily at the end of the second day. And he pays his taxes like a good boy and never sees his old friends anymore. All right, all right, all right, said Hackelman irritably. Forget it. Never mind. He was more nervous than I'd ever seen him before. He drummed on his desk with his fingers and jumped at unexpected sounds. You have something special against him, I asked. It wasn't like Hackelman to go after anyone with such zeal. Ordinarily, he never seemed to care whether justice or crime won out. What interested him were the good news stories that came out of the conflict. After all, the guy really is going straight. Forget it, said Hackelman. Suddenly, he broke his pencil in two, stood up, and strode out, hours before his usual departure time. The next day was my day off. I would have slept till noon, but a paperboy was selling extras under my kitchen window. The headline was huge and black and spelled one terrible word, kidnapped. The story below said that the plaster images of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph had been stolen from Mr. J. Sprague Fleetwood and that he had offered a reward of $1,000 for information leading to their return before the judging of the annual Christmas outdoor lighting contest on Christmas Eve. Hackelman called a few minutes later. I was to come to the office at once to help trace down the clues that were pouring in. The police complained that if there were any clues, hordes of amateur detectives had spoiled them. But there was no pressure at all on the police to solve the robbery. By evening, the search had become a joyful craze that no one escaped, that no one wanted to escape. And the search was for the people to make, not for the police. Throngs went from door to door, asking if anyone had seen the infant Jesus. Thousands insisted on searching the only stable in the city, and the owner made a small fortune selling them hot chocolate and donuts. An enterprising hotel bought a full-page ad declaring that if anybody found Jesus and Mary and Joseph, here was an inn that would make room for them. <laughs> the lead story in every edition of the paper dealt with the search, and every edition was a sellout. Hackelman remained as sarcastic and cynical and efficient as ever. It's a miracle, I told him. By taking this little story and blowing it up big, you've made Christmas live. Hackelman shrugged. Have I remembered to wish you a merry Saturnalia? Saturnalia? Yeah, a nasty old pagan holiday near the end of September, December. The Romans used to close the schools, eat and drink themselves silly, say they loved everyone, and give each other gifts. He answered the phone. No, ma'am, we haven't found him yet. Yes, ma'am, there'll be an extradition if 
he turns up. Yes, ma'am, the stable's already been checked pretty carefully. Thank you. Goodbye. The search was more a spontaneous, playful pageant than an earnest hunt for the missing figures. But the searchers were so caught up in the allegory of what they were doing that a powerful expectation grew up of its own accord. No help from the paper. Everyone was convinced that the Holy Family would be found on Christmas Eve. But on that eve, no new star shone over the city save the 500-watt lamp hung from a balloon over the mansion of J. Sprague Fleetwood, alias Mad Dog Ribbon, the victim of the theft. The mayor, the president of a big manufacturing company, and the chairman of the real estate board rode in the backseat of the mayor's limousine while Hackman and I sat on the jump seats. We were on our way to award the first prize scroll to Gribben, who had replaced the missing figures with new ones. Uh, Turn down this street here, said the chauffeur. Just follow the star, I said. Gribben was waiting for us, wearing a tuxedo, and he opened the car door himself. Gentlemen, Merry Christmas. He stepped aside, motioning us to go ahead. I'd like to think of it as a shrine he said, with people coming from miles around following the star. And the dumbfounding panorama dazzled us again, looking like an outdoor class in calisthenics with expressionless figures bobbing, waving their arms, flapping their wings. Gangster heaven, whispered Hackleman. Oh my, said the mayor. The chairman of the real estate board looked appalled but cleared his throat and recovered gamely. Now there's a display, he said, clinging doggedly to his integrity. Where'd you get the new figures, said Hackleman. Wholesale from a department store supply house, said Gribben. What an engineering feat, said the manufacturer. Took four engineers to do it, said Gribben proudly. Whoever swiped the figures left the neon halos behind, thank God. They're rigged so I can make them blink if you think that'd look better. No, 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 said the mayor. Mustn't gild the lily. Uh, So, do I win? Said Gribben politely. Hmm, said the mayor. Oh, do you win? Well, we have to deliberate, of course. We will let you know this evening. No one seemed to be able to think of anything more to say, and we shuffled back to the limousine. 32 electric motors, two miles of wire, 976 light bulbs, not counting neon, said Gribben as we pulled away. He obviously won, said the manufacturer. We wouldn't dare give the prize to anyone else. He won by brute force, brute dollars, brute kilowatts, no matter how terrible his taste is. There's one more stop, said Hackleman. I thought this was a one-stop expedition, said the manufacturer. I thought we'd agreed on that. Hackleman held up a card. Well, it's a technicality. The official deadline for entries was noon today, and this thing came by special delivery about two seconds ahead of deadline, and we haven't had a chance to check it. It certainly can't match this Fleetwood thing, said the mayor. What could? What's the address? Hackleman told him. Hmm... Shabby neighborhood out in the edge of town, said the real estate man. No competition for our friend Fleetwood. Let's forget it, said the manufacturer. I've got guests coming in and bad public relations, Hackleman said gravely. 
It was startling to hear the words coming from him, enunciated with respect. He'd once said the three most repellent forms of life were rats, leeches, and public relations men in descending order. To the three important men in the back seat, though, the words were impressive and troubling. They mumbled and fidgeted, but didn't have the courage to fight. Well, let's make it quick, said the mayor. And Hackleman gave the driver the card. You sure the address is right? said the chauffeur incredulously. I, I guess the guy knows his own address, says Hackleman. The limousine turned down a dark street, banged over a chuck hole and stopped. This is it, gentlemen, said the chauffeur. We were parked before an empty, leaning, roofless house whose soundest part was its splintered siding, a sign declaring it to be unfit for human habitation. Are rats and termites eligible for this contest, said the mayor. The address checks, said the chauffeur defensively. Oh, turn around and go home, said the mayor. Hold it, said the real estate man. There's a light in the barn in the back. My God, I came all this way to judge, and I'm going to judge. Go see who's in the barn, said the mayor to the chauffeur. The chauffeur shrugged, got out, and walked through the snow-covered rubbish to the barn. He knocked. The door swung open under the impact of his fist. Silhouetted by a frail, wavering light from within, he sank to his knees. Drunk, said Hackleman. I don't think so, murmured the mayor. He licked his lips. I think he's praying for the first time in his life. He got out of the car, and we followed him silently to the barn. When we reached the chauffeur, we went to our knees beside him. Before us were the three missing figures. Joseph and Mary, sheltered against a thousand drafts, the sleeping infant Jesus in his bed of straw. The only illumination came from a single oil lantern, and its wavering light made them live, alive with awe and adoration. On Christmas morning, the paper told the people where the Holy Family could be found. All Christmas Day, people streamed to the cold, lonely barn to worship. A small story inside announced that Mr. Sprague Fleetwood had won the annual Christmas outdoor lighting contest with 32 electric motors, two miles of wire, and 976 light bulbs, not counting neon, and an army surplus weather balloon. Hackleman was on the job at his desk, critical and disillusioned as ever, it's a great, great story, I said. I'm good and sick of it, said Hackleman. He rubbed his hands. What I'm looking forward to is this January when the Christmas bills come in. A great month for homicides. <laughs> well, there's still got to be a follow-up on the Christmas story. We, we don't know who did it. How are you going to find out who did it? The name on the entry blank was a phony, and the guy who owns the barn hasn't been there for years. Fingerprints, I said. We could go over the figures for fingerprints. One more suggestion like that, and you're fired. Fired, I said. What for? Sacrilege, said Hackleman grandly, and the subject was closed. His mind, as he said, was on stories in the future. He never looked back. Hackleman's last act with respect to the theft, the search, and the Christmas was to send me out to the barn with a photographer on Christmas night. 
The mission was routine and trite, and it bored him. Get a crowd shot from the back of the figures facing the camera, said Hackelman. They must be uh, pretty damn dusty by now, so uh, better go over them with a damp cloth before you make the shot. Thank you for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. A Rogue's Christmas was presented on December 11th at Town Hall Seattle by the Short Stories Live series. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>